With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast, a 90s special. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today joined by Dave Prentice and Gav Buchan for part two of a look back at the decade. Uh, part one, the birth of a new decade, and took us right up to, in a very turbulent manner, where Joe Royal was to be appointed, and that is where we begin part two today. We talk about Royal's impact, and then we go on to talk about Howard Kendall's return, the day against Coventry, and of course, other things in between, and positively, of course, uh, a couple of trips to Wembley where we returned with some silverware. Um, chaps, uh, we'll kick off without further ado, because... There is pl- plenty to get through, as as uh, as the first part showed. Um, I- I'll throw it open. Joe Royal came into the football club as manager in November 1994. Can you summarise the impact that Joe's had? Joe had in his tenure. Wow, what a question! Um, first of all, I would advise the listeners to crack open a can of beer or put the kettle on because. There's a lot to get through in this one. And uh, it is a very, very turbulent time in true Everton tradition. Um, Joe's impact was immense uh, in a very, very short period of time. Um, he will always tell you that, you know, for him, the most important aspect of his entire Everton life was keeping Everton in the Premier League in 1994-95. He quite rightly gets credit for winning the FA Cup and being the last Everton manager you know, to bring silverware to the football club. But you cannot underestimate the part he played in keeping Everton in the Premier League. Mike Walker was a disaster. I know we actually you know, we mentioned about that in the previous podcast. But Joe inherited a team that had got seven points from, was it 11 games or even 13 games? It was, it was an appalling start to a season, the worst start to a season in the club's entire history. And from that point, he then suddenly had to get top six football uh, in terms of points gathering to keep Everton in the Premier League. And he did. His impact was immediate. Um, he watched a mini derby at Anfield uh, where Everton reserves beat Liverpool reserves 4-0. It was during an international break. And he couldn't quite understand why Joe Parkinson, John Ebrill and Andy Hinchcliffe were all playing for Everton reserves. So he immediately drafted them into the senior squad, played them uh, in his first game, which was a Merseyside derby on a Monday night against the Liverpool team who were third in the table. And it was just, it was almost like boys' own stuff. I mean, you had Duncan Ferguson, who was the eternal anti-hero, who'd uh, been breathalyzed 48 hours previously by the police uh, for driving the wrong way into Skellon Street bus station. Sorry, the, 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 the car park on Paradise Street. Um, and he was over the limit. Uh, so you got the centre-forward who was, you know, being drinking, earning eggs or two or three days before the game. Went to war that night. Neil Ruddock made the fatal mistake of kicking him in the first half, and that was it. You know, so the, the red mist came down, and Duncan was a man inspired. Won that game 2 0. It was an incredible evening. And to be honest, I genuinely think that night was the night where Duncan, something 
shifted in his mentality. I think he realised this was where he belonged. I'd spoken to him earlier in that season, and uh, I don't think he realised I was a pressman at the time, which is why he deigned to talk to me uh, and asked him about the, <laughs> and asked him about the prospect of staying at Everton beyond his loan spell. And um, he just said, "No, nah, no, nah, I wouldn't have thought so." So I genuinely thought he believed it was a loan, and that was it. And it was that night when he realised how loved he was. He realised the impact he could have on the support base. There's something shifted and he thought, wow, something's moving here. And Everton won 2-0, then beat Leeds 3-0 in the next match. Won Chelsea, beat Chelsea away 1-0. Paul Wright outscored. And it was like a team that couldn't buy a result or buy a clean sheet. was beating some of the better teams in the Premier League. And it was weird. You got the new manager bounce, obviously, from Joe coming in. But he also changed things significantly. Um, you know, so like I say, he brought those three individuals into the first team fold. He toughened things up. Um, you know, he's unashamedly, you know, so introduced his dogs of war as he branded them himself. And if you look a little bit later on that season, and I noticed there were two games where we finished up with nine men. Um, we got, you know, two men sent off at Newcastle, two men sent off at, yeah, at Leicester City. Uh, I still got a point at Leicester. You know, so Everton unashamedly set about teams. Joe used to have this great catchphrase he'd give to Barry Horn. But he'd say, Barry, Barry, discourage them for me, please. <laughs> Barry would go out there and he would discourage midfielders. I remember Rick George, who worked for the uh, you know the Echo back then, he was the Liverpool riser, coming into the office one day and telling me, he goes, oh, Jamie Redknapp's been kicking off about Barry Orn. I hate that Barry Orn. He says, he always tries to do you. And uh, when, I, when, when I, told, I told Barry that, Barry loved it. Because he knew psychologically, you know, so he was winning the battle. So lots and lots of, you know, sort of elements, you know, so sort of were complicit in Everton suddenly turned the season around the way, the way they did. But undoubtedly, the one factor entirely was Joe Royal. Totally transformed that football club in the space of a fortnight. Gav, can you remember, and for, forgive me if we touched on this briefly um, in the yeah. first part, Mike Walker is sacked. Was Joe the only candidate? Was he the only man that the club were thinking of at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, unlike, say, 1990, and even when Mike Walker had uh, got the job in 94, um, there was a, there was not a great deal of um, competition for Joe. I think Ron Atkinson was mentioned, and he, has, yeah. I think I say, he just had the vote of confidence from Aston Bell at the time. So, uh, yeah, Joe was the only, only person, I think, uh, in the frame, maybe he should have got the job in 90. I'm with, with Penno on this. I mean, it was quite savvy way. He sacked Walker and then there was a, a two-week international break um, where I think him and Willie Donachie had a chance to look at... I think Joe said he bought, got a load of tapes, didn't he? And uh, they said that they looked at the team and just too soft, no too easy to play against. And he brought in, as you say, Parkinson. I think I think Glenn Parr was playing for the reserves as well, wasn't he, uh, Preno? Yeah. And, he, and he, brought, uh, he brought them in. So he was pretty back to basic stuff and... All of a sudden, in the space of well, three or four weeks, that the whole mood had changed around the club, and, and not only that, we, we were hard to beat, but we weren't conceding any goals. I think we probably seven or eight goals without games without conceding. So that's, that's what club, Howard actually, actually a club record. We actually went seven yeah. games without conceding a goal, which was a club yeah. record at the time. Yeah. Which, which is what managers do. Good managers do. Don't do the first thing they do is shore up the defence, and that's what Howard used to do. So. Um, Joe was the only person for the job, and you know he got. Thankfully for us, he got immediate results. I mean, I mean, the other one about Preno, just to add on, there's a story about. I think he knew how to wind up people up, especially Liverpool. If you remember the uh, talk about Jamie Redknapp, um, remember yeah. the Anfield derby Preno in January 1995. 
Evans came out afterwards to complain about uh, Everton's robust tactics, shall we say. Yeah. And I think Joe said, oh, I can hear the, the, the sound of dummies being thrown out of bounds here, you know. Um, so he knew, he knew how to handle that sort of, you know, Liverpool-Everton rivalry because he's obviously been a player here. Um, so, yeah, having been a player for so long and being ingrained in the club, it's an enormous difference, made an enormous difference to coming in and making you know, an instant impact. He had a great manner about him and still does, you know, so he's a very engaging individual. And if you think about, I mentioned in the earlier podcast that, you know, Mike Walker did not have the respect of, you know, all of the players at the football club. Joe immediately did have the respect uh, just because of the way he dealt with them and, and the way, you know, so he handled them. He didn't embrace all of them. I mean, uh, Vinny Samways famously uh, was a player he just didn't rate at all and, uh, you know, so sort of bombed him out of the, uh, at the squad immediately. And uh, when he left the club the following year, he gave this uh, this interview where he said, yes, very, very pointed. He said, yeah, I'd like to thank Vinny uh, for the, the one match that we won during uh, his tenure at Everton Football Club. <laughs> and it was, he did, he had this real, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek way of, uh, of bringing people, you know, sort of down to earth. But I know the players of that, you know, that group got on brilliantly with him. Uh, you know, so the players that he embraced as his lieutenants, if you like, you know, so Barry Horn, Joe Parkinson, Andy Hinchcliffe, Paul Ridehouse, uh, all really, really respected him. And there was clearly a, a great dynamic that was untapped in that squad of players at the time. Mike Walker hadn't been able to tap into it, but Joe did. And um, I think he said very early in that season, uh, he actually recommended to Peter Johnson uh, to put money on Everton to win the FA Cup. He says, because we're going to be playing cup-tie football this season. You know, we need to play cup-tie football to survive. So, you know, it might not be a bad idea putting money on us to win the cup. And he did. And he got players like Barry Horn, Joe Parkinson, John Eberl, absolutely, you know, so running through hoops for him. I think he made that quick himself, didn't he, about the derby match. Uh, he says, a, a crisp packet blew onto, the dar- blew onto the pitch and Barry and Joe tried to tackle it. And it was, it, was, it was that kind of mentality that was at work. And they, they embraced it. The players embraced it. Joe embraced it. You know, so Willie uh, on the training pitch, they all, you know, so got on really well with Willie Donerke. He was a really tough taskmaster, but, you know, so a really good down-to-earth guy as well. And it was, the mood was transformed and it needed to because, you know, the club was in absolutely dire straits and it needed that, to, you know, degree of turnaround just to stay in the Premier League. Gav, um, you mentioned it about uh, about the derby. What's it say about Joe as a manager he, that he was able to come in the first game, a derby? Now, a, a derby for experienced managers who've been at the football club for seasons are, are difficult, as as we know. Yet Joe managed to come in and, and, and produce a victory with a team that was bottom of the league. Yeah, I don't think they were sort of bottom of the table you know, if you, yeah, if you looked at the abilities of all the teams in the Premier League in 94, 95, um, I think it says, I mean, Joe obviously understood the importance of the derby uh, and the importance of the rivalry and, and, you know, how to get the best results in derby matches. I think he was helped in his tenure as well, to be fair. The fact that I always felt that Liverpool in the mid-90s, I think I was, I was pretty much acknowledged with a bit of a soft touch. You know, I had some really good players, but actually, if you... If you got into them, um, you know, maybe they weren't at the best. So, with it, you know, we had these results before, immediately before Joe and immediately afterwards, you know. Um, so, I think um, they, were, they, they were a soft touch Liverpool in that time, but Joe knew how to take advantage of that, you know, you know, to, to press the weaknesses. And, um, 
it, it helped because he'd been a player. And this derby record is, I think, he, I think is he still the? Well, the might have changed recently, obviously. I think he was for years the only unbeaten manager in the derby, wasn't he? I think he was his entire uh, tenure as Everton manager. Yeah. He never lost a derby match. Yeah, the time he was there. It's funny actually because Slaven Bilic was still at the club and around about that time. And I remember him, you know, sort of being asked about, uh, you know, so sort of why Everton could somehow turn it on in derby matches when Liverpool always seem to have better players. And uh, he came out with a great one-liner. He goes, "Yes, yes, they do have better players, but we have more men." And that was exactly, and then that was exactly right. You know, so in derby matches, yeah. Everton did get about them and you know unsettled them. And back then, it worked certainly. Um, of course, we can't talk about Joe's first season without talking about the FA Cup. Preno, you, you spoke about him promising uh, Peter Johnson that we'd be playing cup football. And if, if we look back at the run, one nil, one nil, five nil, one nil, four one, and then one nil in the final. I mean, to concede one goal. From the third round all the way to Wembley, it's astonishing. It is, and that goal was uh, a very, very dubious penalty when Jurgen Klinsmann dived in the semi-final. So you know they should have kept clean sheets all the way through. It underlined the kind of football Everton were playing. I mean, like, as Gav said earlier, Joe wanted to strengthen things defensively, which was something that you know Mike Walker clearly hadn't done. And I know later he did come to dislike that dogs of war tag because he thought it was like a stick being used to beat Everton with whilst it was vital in that season and helped Everton win the FA Cup that season. The following year, uh, when he was trying to expand a little bit and uh, Everton just missed out on qualifying for Europe and he missed out on the last game of the season, they were playing more expansive football. But, you know, cute managers like Alex Ferguson were, were still throwing disparaging remarks and Everton went to Old Trafford and drew 2-2, should have won. And uh, Fergie made this like dismissive comment about Route 1 football. And it was designed in true Ferguson tradition to try and take the attention away from how poorly his own team had performed that day. But Joe didn't like that because it was almost like that was all he was capable of doing, you know, was organising a team that could, you know, sort of could dig in and battle. And it didn't, you know, so he was a much better coach than that. Uh, but certainly the FA Cup campaign, uh, Derby County was the first game and it was it was a tight match. Emerson won one nil. Uh, notable because Craig Short played for Derby that day and uh, Joe spotted him and liked the look of him and brought him into the club, you know, for the following season. But then Bristol City away in the fourth round, that was the day when you really thought, oh, hello, what's going on here? Because we got battered that day, absolutely battered. Uh, there'd been a virus going through the squad and uh, a load of players like were really under the weather. John Edbull was taken out to the starting lineup just before the kickoff and was sat on the dugout all wrapped up like a mummy. Uh, Neville was at his best that day, made all kinds of incredible saves. And then got to like about eight minutes from the end and we're frantically thankful that we've got a replay when Matt Jackson let fly with this left-footed volley from 25 yards, absolutely leathered one into the top corner. And you just thought, oh, hang on. You know, so maybe something's happening. And you often say that, you know, teams that win the cup, their name is on the cup. And as early as the fourth round, you thought, yes, this could be the year. Because, you know, the fifth round absolutely demolished, you know, so Norwich took them apart, 5-0. Quarterfinals was Newcastle, and they were a decent side. Um, you know, so Newcastle under Kevin Keegan, uh, you know, so really, really good, attractive team. And Everson just dug in, dug, got about them. Should have Stuart Barlow, as he was his wont, Mr. Sitter, clean through that day. Uh, but, you know, so Waggy actually, you know, so managed to head one in. And Kevin Keegan was very, very grumpy after that match. Remember him coming up to the press conference and just saying, this is all about Joe, not about me. Goodbye. And went straight back downstairs again. <laughs> Absolutely gutted. Uh, and then... To underline, you know, why Joe was more than just a manager capable of creating a team not to lose matches. The semi-final against Spurs, when Spurs were massive, you know, sort of media favourites, Everson outfootballed them 
absolutely battered them 4-1 and played some wonderful football that day. I'll let Gavin talk about that because, you know, it, you, you remember it well, don't you, Gavin? You know, Joe Park, he's dragged yeah. back. You know, it was everything about that game. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was. I tell you what, Derby, Lee Carsey played for Derby County as well, didn't he? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Spurs game, I think Joe's got on record as one of Everton's finest post-war performances and I'd certainly agree with that. There was, a bit, there was a bit of a backstory, though, wasn't it, to the Spurs? We, we were talking about this the other week, Graham, and I was talking about name on the cup. Spurs had been thrown out the competition or banned from the competition at the start of the season over some administrative issues at White Hart Lane. So um, they, they, they'd actually been thrown out the cup, and then Alan Sugar had, had sort of fought a battle to get them back in. And so being back in the cup, and he'd won at Anfield, hadn't he, Spurs in the quarterfinal. So thinking... Not only is their name, our name on the trophy, but it's probably, that's a great storyline, isn't it? You know, back, the team who won the cup haven't been banned, you know. Um, but, and you've seen the Spurs team, you know, Sheringham, Barnby, I think, you know, Klinsman. I think it's going to be a tough game today. But we, it was, it, it helped that famously, Ellen's old was three sides with Everton fans, yeah. wasn't it? And I think the club had supplied these two massive flags before the game. And it felt very much like a home game on, on a ground that we're not really... You know, got fond memories of it. Yeah, especially in the cup. And on the day, I mean, two, at 2 1, you think it's a bit of an injustice and never made the good save. But you know, when you said Joe's cute, and I think he was a bit more cute than what people thought, is they had a young left back whose name was it Austin playing left back um, yeah. for them. And then Pi used to play wide left. You put Anders on the right. Yeah. And Anders uh, tormented them all, all game. And, um, they got it back. I think Nev made a good save, didn't he, from Klinsman at 2-1. And we got into the... By this stage, we've now got into the, the famous Daniel Amakati yeah. substitution. To which my, my understanding is, there's, there's very, very, very variations of this, is Paul Rydell went out on... Went over to him on the far side, the pitch in the dugout. Mm. Les Elm went to see him. I think Les Elm had a, a sort of signals to Joe, didn't he? Signal to Joe. I think he put his hand up to say... I'm going to take that man, take him off the pitch, we'll see how he, how he is. And I think Joe may be been thinking of bringing Daniel on. And Dan, Daniel Amakati had like his substitute slip, which I think he did get off Jimmy Martin, I think. <laughs> just just give it thought that by that was going off, or maybe not even. <laughs> just thought, give it to the lads, just ran on the pitch. He did his substitute for the job. He ran to the, uh, the fourth official and you could yeah. see Joe coming out of the dugout and, you know, sort of waving at him to come back. Yeah. And, and Daniel had just, you know, sort of spoken to the fourth <laughs> official. Yep, yeah, I'm coming on. And that was it. Yeah. Substituted himself. Yeah. yeah and, and as we well know, history, uh, history tells Daniel Daniel uh, scored two as a sub. I mean, and to be fair, 4 1 was about the right, right result in that game because we yeah. were far, far the superior team. Uh, and anything less than a source of three or four goal margin wouldn't have done justice to our, our well, performance. I, I, I think I mentioned in a, a podcast recently about the uh, the atmosphere in the press box that day uh, because Alan's Road uh, was an enclosed press box behind smoked glass. And uh, I remember a couple of the national boys were absolutely convinced it was going to be a Spurs-Man United final. And uh, so much so that one of the guys from the Daily Mail, I think it was, had written that morning, uh, I've looked into my crystal ball and never have I been more confident than we'll be seeing a Tottenham versus Manchester United Cup final. So in that press box, we had all like the local lads, myself, Phil McNulty, Vic Gibson, we were all like sort of sat down one end and the national boys were down the other. 
And as Everton are getting more and more, you know, so ahead, we're getting more and more excited. And professional demeanour did go out the window a little bit, I'm afraid to say. Uh, certainly wasn't me, but one of my colleagues, I remember, shouting down there at the press ranks to the Daily Mail <laughs> correspondent, hey, how's your effing crystal ball looking now? <laughs> and, uh, it was absolutely wonderful. And then after the game, the post-match press conference, Joe continued with that theme a little bit because uh, he walked in with that little wry smile on his face as he did. He never got really up or really down, Joe. He was always like very, very level-headed. And he just walked in and he says, oh, well, gentlemen, sorry about the dream final. Oh, bollocks to you. And that's with a double L. And you can see all like the other last lads go, oh, no need for that, no need for that. But we loved it. And you know, the Emerson fans loved it as well. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a truly great day. It was a great day, so, though. I mean, look, Gav. We all we all remember '95 and the final. But just take us back to you know, we we spoke there. Prano said about the odds were against Everton in the semi-finals. How heavily were the odds stacked in Manchester United's favour with the bookies going into uh, into the final? They were they were the favourites. There was a couple of things going on there that were in our our favour. Uh, first, we beat them in February. In the league, which we shouldn't underestimate that game in terms of importance. Duncan famously scored the goal and took the shares off, so that gave a bit of confidence. I think the second thing was that they'd lost the um, they'd lost the lead the week before, Radney, when Blackburn had won and United got beat at West Ham. And I think they had a couple of niggling injuries. There was no Kanchelskis, there was no Giggs, if I remember. Um, I yeah. yeah, so I think they had. Um, they had pressure on them to deliver a trophy, plus you know a few injuries, and that's not necessarily the best. If you've lost the league the week before, as we well know, it's not the best to be going into a cup final on that, that basis. You do feel the pressure a little bit more, and we we developed into you know a hard to beat team. Joe set the team up at Wembley, I think, not to concede. I mean, he played effectively two left backs on the left hand side, didn't he? Um, and you know, I. Though we weren't, you know, I wouldn't say we were massively underdogs. United were still the favourite, but it's not that. It's not like now where you get a team at the top of the table playing whatever we finished that year, 13, 14. It's not like now. The gap, the gap is not as great as what you think. Uh, and so it proved on the day as well. I think um, on the day, it panned out as you would expect. United under pressure. We were up for it. And momentum's a great thing. And I know you mentioned this, don't you? If, if you if you think it's your year, yeah. you sort of, it gives an extra 5%, doesn't it, to your performance? I think that was reflected. Yeah, you're talking about momentum. I mean, uh, we went into that match having one away at Ipswich uh, on the, was it, was it Monday night, was it, or Tuesday night? Yeah. And uh, that guaranteed Premier League safety, which meant that we could then go to the final match of the season at Coventry, knowing the pressure was off. We didn't need to get a result. Uh, so we went there, June 0-0. And Duncan hadn't played for about three months because he'd had a knee injury. And he was patently, massively unfit. Uh, and he came on for the final 45 minutes of that game, came on at half-time in a bid to prove to Joe that he was match-fit to be part of the FA Cup squad. And he wasn't. You could tell he was miles off the pace. But Joe had the, the biggest, the hardest decision of his managerial career at Everton. And that was whether to include him in the, the Cup final squad or not to. Eventually, he decided to, because of what you just said there, Gav, because he'd scored the goal in February against United. And psychologically, having him on the bench 
would have been a massive, you know, sort of plus point in Everton's favour. You know, if United looked across at the bench and saw Duncan there, they didn't know he was unfit. They would have worked in Everton's favour. So Joe had the really difficult decision of telling John Edbrill he couldn't be part of the squad because Daniel Amakachi, only days of only two outfield substitutes, um, and Daniel Amakachi was the other one. Uh, so he basically tracked him all around the team hotel on the eve of the game until he could find him on his own. I said, John, I need to have a conversation with you. And John knew what was coming. You know, so, oh, God, no, no gaffer. And he took it, you know, as, as well as you can take a decision like that. And Duncan eventually got onto the pitch. And, you know, you could tell he was miles off, but he was there purely for the psychological impact he could have on Manchester United. And again, part of Joe's, you know, sort of man management technique, he knew that would unsettle United if necessary. And it probably did. Yeah, I mean, the main memory of the final was thinking, you know, beforehand, oh, it's going to be real blood and thunder and, you know, as you say, dogs of war stuff and all this, which is the game of Goodison in February was a bit like that. But I remember the first half hour, it was quite uh, it was quite quiet. <laughs> there was really there was really nothing nothing happening. Um, you know, there was a couple of tackles, but it wasn't like you would expect from a cup fan on the set, it wasn't what you would expect from an Everton Manchester United game. And then I don't I don't know why. Um it wasn't Fergie's greatest day as, as a manager, I think. He made a couple of bad decisions. Um, the first one was with, I think, Steve Bruce done his hamstring, didn't he, after about 15 minutes? And I think rather than take him off, he kept him on. And the, at half hour, I think it was half hour mark, whatever it was, you know, I don't know why, but they had like, they massively overloaded their, their, their forward line, didn't they? And then we broke uh, on the right hand side. Um, Matt Jackson uh, got to the edge of the penalty area, squared it. Graeme Stewart, you know, thankfully for what happened next, probably missed one of the great memory chances. And um, I think he came down and you, you really underestimate Paul Rideout's header. The, that from a standing jump, from ball with not a lot of pace on it, to get that much sort of traction and momentum on the ball from that, that um, position took a lot, lot, uh, lot of effort and experience. And Steve Bruce was on the line. Steve Bruce didn't jump, done he? Yeah. Did he? Because he was injured. And Peter Schmeichel was going mad yeah. afterwards. Um, and I don't think it was Fergie's uh, Fergie's finest down. He ends up, you know, Roy Keane, who's most expensive midfielder, but yeah, he messed it about so much. He ends up playing Roy Keane at right back for the second half. Yeah. And so that helped us as well that day. You know, everything like when you win the cup, everything always seems to go in your favour, doesn't it? Bad, bad decisions from the other team. You get a little bit of luck and stuff. And but I was you really underrate that finish by Rydhouse and he got Graeme Stewart out of jail uh, to the sweet, yeah. Totally, yeah. It, it, it wasn't a great final, you know. If you think back to it, yeah, not, no. not a great deal happened, but no one's bothered, you know. So when you end up winning the cup at the end of it, uh, you talk about them not being much in the way of you know sort of frantic tackling or anything, and there wasn't. But the goal itself actually came from a little bit of dogged tackling on the edge of the penalty area. Dave Watson just dug in. And uh, I remember Paul Ince, he was up against, I can't remember, but he had this like, you know, so real dogged, you know, so attempt to win the ball, won it, and it broke through for Matt, who then, you know, so went on that long run. And Anders, sorry, and then uh, Matt and that, you know, that long run in support. And yeah, Diamonds, he, he wasn't gutted about it, you know, because of what happened subsequently. But yeah, he should have buried it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, he's I remember the second half. I remember the second half expecting an onslaught. It never really happened to me. No, I think Ned made a double save, didn't he? And one real Hollywood save to his right. Can't well, that was it. Ned got all kinds of uh, yeah. plaudits that game. And that was yeah. one of his quieter games. He'll admit that yeah. himself. And yeah, you know, he, he showboated a little bit, uh, you know, so with a couple of the saves. You know, one of them he made yeah. his legs. But it, they were the kind of saves you expect Ned to make all the time. They weren't, yeah. you know, absolutely stunning stops. 
Yeah, there was a great battle with uh, Unzi and Mark Hughes in that game. Wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Unzi came of age in that game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was a great. But well, I always remember uh, Waggy, somebody tweeted the other way, uh, the other week, um, is Dave Watson an Everton legend? Yeah, yeah. Why are you asking that question? You know, yeah. he's one of the yeah. few living legends we've got, you know, and um, yeah. he. he, he uh, he was magnificent that cup run. He's brilliant at Newcastle. The Newcastle game is fantastic. Yeah. Waggy was uh, fully deserved to lift the FA Cup because he'd obviously played in the mid eighties. But that you know, but that was his moment, wasn't it? Really, and uh, I, I was so. really pleased for Waggy. He's a top man, top blue. Yeah. Uh, even though he started the school, obviously, um, <laughs> that that was his that was his day. That and I was I was I always when I look back on that, I always think Waggy. Because he's just he's just a legend, and you know what what a player and character um, we were lucky to have there. Very quickly, then, uh, just one word answer from each of you. Who was man of the match that day? Um, I think the official man of the match was Waggy, wasn't it? Was it Dave Watson? Well, I was. Yeah, what, I can't what, who was your man I, of the match? I would I would I would have said Dunsey. You know, I thought he had a tremendous game. I had a person to be gone for Unzi, yeah. Um, I think I, mean, I, had, I had a waggy on. Neville probably got it that day, but I had a gone for Unzi personally as well, yeah. Okay. Well, Joe had managed the incredible feat of keeping us up and then winning the FA Cup. Um, what were the expectations going into 95-96? Uh, well, I remember doing an interview with Peter Johnson after that game. And uh, he spoke about, um, you know, the Everton are in a false position. You know, we're going to invest in the squad. Uh, we're going to give Joe Royal money to spend. And, you know, we want to be aiming for Europe. So that was it, you know, from having been literally that close to being relegated uh, the following season, you know, the, the pressure was back on again. You know, so Everton were expected to be qualifying for Europe. And God bless him, Joe, you know, missed out on the last match of the season. Um, we were playing a Villa at home. We did our bit and won 1-0. Um, Arsenal were playing Bolton, I think it was, and they were losing 1-0. But then Dennis Bergkamp scored two in the last 10 minutes, and so Arsenal just pipped us, so we finished sixth in the end. Uh, but it was it was um, you know an incredible turnaround. And, of course, that was the season where Joe had brought Andre Konchelskis uh, mm. from Manchester United. A long, drawn-out affair. Middlesbrough were trying to sign him as well. Uh, so it was a battle with Brian Robson, you know, so his old teammates, uh, to buy him. Uh, then United were trying to, you know, sort of push the boat out financially. Then there were all kinds of issues with Shakhtar Donetsk, who we played for previously, all kinds of clauses in the contract that needed to iron and out. So it took a long time to finally get him into the club. And then Sod's Law, he played one game and injured his shoulder uh, and was missing for like a, a couple of months, well, a month or so. But when he finally did get into the team and hit the ground running, what a player. You know, so arguably the most you know, sort of impressive player you know, sort of the modern era at Everton. I always remember one pre-season friendly at Wrexham uh, where I think he scored four goals. And he, footballers, you know, so as is their nature, they're very self-deprecating and they take the mickey out of each other, something rotten. And they'll never tell another footballer how good they are. You know, they always like to you know, bring them down to earth. And they all came out of the dressing room that day of the race course and they were just shaking their heads as they were walking past me going, oh my God, how good was he? How good was Andre? How good was he? Uh, and he was, he was he was absolutely a phenomenon that season. It was just a shame. It was only a one-season wonder because he basically disappeared into his shell the following season. But for that 95-96 season, he was like a force of nature. Gav, yeah, um, I mean... If you remember, 16 league goals that season for, for, for Andre. Um, you know, we, um, our, our colleague Adam Jones actually put out a, um, a, a bit of a poll on Twitter the other day asking... 
asking fans for, for the the signing they were most excited about at the time. And of course, a lot of fans of a certain era mentioned Lukaku joining permanently, but quite a lot mentioned Andre. Can yeah. you can you sort of sum up the excitement and, and why did Manchester United agree to sell him? Uh, well, well, that's a good question. <laughs> well, the, 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 I think that's someone in '95. I mean, we have to talk about Stan Collymore here because somebody asked us to <laughs> think on Twitter. Yeah, of course, <laughs> um, we talk about ambition. There was a lot of ambition, as you say, Peter Johnson, and I think in the due. Collymore was going to be leaving Nottingham Forest and um, the choice was having a Liverpool, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, and I think, if, if I remember, I think we were offering more money. Uh, we we but, were. I mean, I can, I can yeah. throw a little bit of insight into this because yeah. um, Joe was very, very upset with the media at the time uh, for, for Stan, you know, so ended up going to Liverpool. And I think that was Joe overreacting a little bit uh, because, you know, Stan Collymore had the choice between Everton and Liverpool and uh, the Daily Post, as was the morning newspaper, on you know, whilst he was still making up his mind, uh, carried a story. Uh, some university academic had been interviewed, and he talked about racism in English football and why Everton were commonly known to be you know, so a racist football club. Yeah. Uh, because you know, we'd had that issue for a long time where we hadn't bought you know, so black players. Daniel Amakachi had broken that trend, but he was one of the few. And uh, you know, for whatever reason, the Daily Post carried the story that day. And Joe went ballistic. Joe thought that would influence Stan Collymore in his thinking. I don't think it did. You know, I don't even know if Stan Collymore was aware of the Daily Post's existence. Um, no. But I just, I just think it was a toss-up between Everton and Liverpool, and he wanted to go to Liverpool. I think he thought yeah, the possibility I, I, of winning trophies. I think the there. story at the time was that I think because he played at England under twenty-one level, whatever. I think he was still. I think he was mates, wasn't he, with some of what, what are now known as the the Spice Boys. Yeah, um, I think you know that those people that he was subsequently became friendly with, or was picked with at Anfield, he was already mates with them. And I think that was one of the one of the aspects to it that he, he knew he could be going into a dressing room that he knew at Anfield. And I, well, that shows you the ambition because Stan was a British record today, wasn't he? Eight and a half million. Eight, eight and a half million yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, Joe wanted a pairing with Duncan Ferguson, and he always said, yeah. "Imagine those two up front together." <laughs> and yeah. I mean, it, on the days that they clicked. They would be, you know, what they used to say at the time, absolutely unplayable. Um, but you'd also get plenty of afternoons where they were going through the motions and maybe weren't at it. Uh, but, you know, like, for example, the, the Newcastle United game at the start of that season when Alan Shearer uh, was making his debut uh, for, uh, for Newcastle, 15 million quid. And Everson bid for Alan Shearer as well. You know, that was a yeah. sign of the club's ambition. It was madness because uh, Newcastle had bid 15 million and Everson went in and bid 12. Hmm, work that one out if you can. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where's he going to end up going to? But anyway, you know, so Duncan had his like nose clouds joins a little bit that Alan Shearer was getting all this uh, publicity and all this, uh, you know, so media attention. And he'd been wandering around Belfield all week, singing this mad little song about Alan Shearer. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, basically he wanted to outshine, you know, so Alan Shearer that day. And boy, did he. He had an absolutely inspired afternoon. Everson won 2-0, you know, so he created both goals. It was, it was just, you know, so Duncan at his absolute best. So imagine him and Stan Collymore at their best in the same team. On the yeah. Day they clicked. Wow. I think, I think that was Joel's problem, wasn't it, after 95, was the fact that he wanted to get a striker in. But I think he, you know, as you say, Collymore, he was after David Ayrst as well, Sheffield Wednesday. He was always bidding for Mark Hughes, who'd gone to Chelsea. If you remember, Prano, we went over to Italy to, to talk with George Weir as well when nice. George was playing for Milan. And he, he never quite got, he never got that striker because 95, 96, of course, Duncan, as we know, was saved, whatever it was, in prison yeah. and stuff and missed half the campaign. 
So if we'd have got a striker, then that would have made a difference maybe for us. Um, you know, getting into Europe again in you know at the end of ninety five, ninety six season. And I remember the ninety six as well. The story, there was a bit of a convoluted story that Shearer went to Man United. They all still build sell Andy Cole to us. Um, but I remember that day that Newcastle game because we bought Gary Speed, haven't we? Yeah. In the summer, and I think Speed scored and Duncan was unplayable um, on a really roasted pot. Day. And then the, the sort of that's it was a bit of a strange campaign that wasn't it ninety six ninety seven it, it it's peaks and troughs what I remember about that is is you know we talk about long ball you remember I remember you saying about look be four nil at Wimbledon didn't we right at the start of the season and uh, afterwards saying like one of the managers was saying oh they just knocked the ball long to the big man you know up top and we just made sure we got the second ball. And that wasn't like uh, Joe Royal talking about Wimbledon. It was Wimbledon talking about Everton, you know, Joe yeah. Nair. And we'd had a really few injuries. We'd, post, we'd, we'd won and never won for that seven or eight games. We got knocked out. I think we, we, we was it York City that year or Millwall, we got beat in the League Cup. And we, we had a couple of bad, bad defeats at Port Vale in the FA Cup, hadn't we? And Joe got a bit uppity, I think, with a few people. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah, as we well know, then 96, 97, we start on this run, don't we, for about October 96, we signed Barbie, we beat Southampton 7-1, we win a few away games, I think we won a tie, we did meet just before Christmas, all of a sudden, with Dark Horses for the title, you know, on Sky, I think we beat Derby on, on Sky, didn't we, Nick Barbie scored, and Andy Gray was saying, these are dark horses for the title that are very difficult teams to beat. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I remember that very, very well. Yeah, I mean, the 96-97 you know, season, it had been a mixed campaign, but we had that great run. And you're right, it was uh, Joe Park. He shot from 20 yards, came off the crossbar, and Barby put it in with his nose. And uh, Nick Barby had been a club record transfer signing, 5.75 yeah. million. So, you know, they were certainly spending money. But you're right, it was um, Richard Keyes and Andy Gray who basically said that, yeah, Everton have got to be considered dark horses to win the league. And what was significant about that is that nobody mocked. Everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right, you're absolutely spot on. And from that point, um, on Boxing Day against Leeds, Andy Hinchcliffe, who was very, very important uh, to that team for his set-piece delivery, uh, for his you know, sort of balance down the left, he did his cruciate knee ligaments and was out for the rest of the season. Joe Parkinson at Middlesbrough two days later uh, did his knee, uh, an injury which basically cost him his career. You know, so he was very important and his career effectively ended that day. He had a couple of uh, attempted comebacks which never really worked out. And then Dave Watson uh, got injured, not long-term, but enough to keep him out for a couple of games, and he was important as well. And so a little wobble started just then. And, um, yeah. It, the, the, the wobble lasted, like, so for, for two or three months. And you're right, I mean, Joe started getting flack uh, in the media, you know, so notably a couple of my colleagues at the Echo, and he didn't react very, very well to it at all. And, uh, you know, so it went into lockdown a little bit. But Peter Johnson, crucially, 
used to listen, you know, so to everybody, and he'd take, you know, so readings from, you know, so all over the media. Uh, and he started, you know, so putting a bit of pressure on Joe. And he got to that point whereby Joe wanted to sign two players on transfer deadline day in March. Uh, Torrey Andre Flo, who was a, a very, very good striker, ended up going to Chelsea and doing very, very well there. And uh, a make in the deal from Bram Bergen was a fellow called Klaus Eftervarg, who was a, a central defender. It was basically to replace Waggy for the time when Waggy, you know, so it wasn't fit. And... Um, it was never, I mean, Johnson wasn't particularly happy about the deal. I think he thought Eftevard was hopeless. Uh, again, as we said in the previous podcast, you know, so club hierarchy making decisions on players who they should and shouldn't sign. Uh, and he thought Harry Andriffler was overpriced. And so we got that situation. He tried to sign goalkeepers as well, Nigel Martin, because Joe had made it perfectly clear he wanted to replace Neville. He thought Neville, you know, had finally great servant there he'd been. Uh, time was right to replace him. He brought in Paul Gerrard. He was never quite uh, good enough to, to replace Neville, but he tried to sign Nigel Martin. I know Peter Johnson and Cliff Finch managed to screw that one up. He tried, tried, to to sign, him, tried to sign Marcus Walter Mark as well, Walter didn't he? was another yeah. one. And yes, again, that one was fouled up. And so Joe was having you know, frustrations in the transfer market with Johnson. Uh, and he went across, the, the day he went, uh, I'd seen him at Goodison that morning, and uh, they were announcing a number of cup competition for the following seasons pre-season uh, with Chelsea, Ajax and Newcastle. And Joe had been there, you know, he, he, he winked at me during the end of the press conference, walked out, and, yeah, every, everything was absolutely fine. What we didn't know, he was then going over to uh, Park Foods to meet Peter Johnson. And uh, Desmond Pitcher, one of the, one of the uh, deputy chairmen, I think he was, uh, had been speaking to Peter earlier in the day. And I said, this, oh, hello, I believe he's seeing Joe later. I believe he's coming over to offer his resignation. No one knows why Desmond Pitcher said that. Uh, you know, so, but, you know, Johnson is in his office, because Joe certainly wasn't. Joe walks in, and the, Joe, uh, Peter Johnson's opening gambit was, oh, hello, uh, Joe, I believe you're coming to offer my resignation. Now, talk about putting the man off his guard. You know, so Joe's like, no, where did you get that from? You don't want me to, do you? And the pair of them basically started having this conversation where it quickly became clear that Joe didn't have the total confidence of Peter Johnson. Uh, and in about a space of about an hour and a half, they agreed that he was going to leave the club and be mutually consented. Now, the big dynamic here is that Cliff Finch, who was uh, Peter Johnson's right-hand man, was away at the time. I think he was uh, in the Caribbean or something. And uh, Peter subsequently said, Joe subsequently said, if Clifford had been there, you'd have just said to the pair of them, what are you doing? Behave yourselves, you know, knock the heads together and just, you know, let's go on with things. We've had a bad run. Let's just go on with things. But they didn't. Joe was listening to Desmond Pitcher, listening to some of the things that were being written in the media and thought it was a good idea to make this change. So a man who transformed the football club in the space of, well, you know, two and a half years and admit had admittedly a two and a half month rocky spell was suddenly the former Everton manager. It was absolute madness. It really was. Yeah, we'd had a, that we'd had a terrible run though, hadn't we? And there was a few things going on. I think I think one of the things Johnson, I believe, was that Joe wanted to sign Barry Owen back, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. From Birmingham, and he, he thought that uh, that maybe it looked like a backward step. That it wouldn't look great. It's a great it's a great story with Barry Owen. Thought yeah. he was going to Everton, and was Trevor Francis the manager of Birmingham then? So he started slagging Trevor Francis off. Because <laughs> he thought he was going to heaven and the deal well, well today, wasn't it? Well, that was it. Joe, Joe after he'd you know, been mutually yeah. consented, tried to get all the Barry to yeah. say, Look, mate, you know, I'm sorry, but it's all off now. You haven't spoken to Trevor yet, have you? And Barry's yeah. like, Oh my God, yes, I've just been <laughs> to see him. So, yeah. Well, yeah. But, but you can see why, I mean, I, I, don't, I may be slightly unpopular opinion this, but I love Joe and obviously a big 
big Everton fan. But to me, Joe was a bit like Gordon Lee, where he'd come in for a couple of years and then when you come to shape a team in your own style and your own tactics and your own vision, um, I'm not sure. You would argue that he never got the chance, to be fair. But I think a lot of this squad was, and you touched on this, I think, in the last pod, Dave, was by the mid-90s, the Premier League was now become the Premier League. It seemed like a, a new competition, didn't it? So in the mid-90s, you had clubs like Middlesbrough bringing in Ravinelli, um, Janino, you know, had Spurs, Arsenal, they were very much our equals at the time. Yeah. You know, bringing in obviously Vieira and Bergkamp and stuff like that. And I think that this squad with supporters was, well, why aren't we bringing players in like that? You know, by, you know, obviously we've spoken, in many respects, what we've spoken about here is part of the problem is we were bidding for players, but they wouldn't come to us, would they? Well, you talk you know, about you talk about Bergkamp, yeah. and I heard a story at the time, and I, again, I, I can't you know, sort of say with any degree of certainty that it was true or not, but certainly Cliff Finch and Peter Johnson suggested that they'd pitched Dennis Bergkamp, uh, the idea of Dennis Bergkamp to Joe. Whether he'd have come or not, I don't know, but yeah. Joe dismissed it, and Joe said that, no, he was past his best. Uh, that may or may not be true, I don't know. But yeah, you know, certainly there was uh, a conflict between the powers that be and Joe over the type of players that they should be bringing in. Uh, but no, I, I think it was a massive backward step, you know, sort of getting rid of Joe the way he did and the time. The time I think, yeah, I think he, I think he would probably give him another year. But I can I can see why we'd taken nine points from fourteen games, something like that. We were yeah, slide yeah. towards the, the, you know, the the the, the you know the abyss again. You know, we don't you know, obviously described with Kanchelskis, wasn't it? That caused a lot of upset in the changing room, hadn't it? Yeah. For the morale of the team, the first half of the year. I mean, there was rumours that having bought Barnby, he was going to sell. I mean, Remember, there was a bad defeat at Newcastle, wasn't it, where he dropped Barnby, never got dropped yeah. in for the first time since the 5-0. And you just yeah. got the impression behind the scenes, things weren't great. So you can fully understand why there was a hard to be a conversation between Johnson and Joe Royal. I mean, but maybe it shouldn't have been that outcome. But I could see why supporters were unhappy. And well, we got knocked out of the FA Cup, hadn't we, by Bradford? That was my worst moment to report on Emerson that afternoon. It, it was absolutely horrendous. Um, because the atmosphere was just so toxic and so poisonous around the place. But I think Joe w- was a victim of his own success because we look at how bad the team had been under Mike Walker and yeah. he transformed it almost miraculously by the click of his fingers. But clearly the club needed changing from top to bottom. The squad needed rebuilding. And because he'd achieved success very, very quickly, people lost sight of that a little bit and uh, realised that you know, so maybe things aren't quite as bad as, as they are. And they were. And, you know, it needed a major, major, you know, reshuffle, a major squad rebuild. And unfortunately, he was never really given the opportunity to do that. He brought in, you know, so one or two individuals. But, you know, certainly the entire squad, as we talked about, the goalkeeper needed changing. Uh, there were, like, so other significant members and the centre-forward was needed. Uh, he never really got the opportunity to do it. Um, just before we, we move on to, to post Joe and, and Waggy taking over, I just want to roll back very quickly. Um in, in the in the sort of afterglow of the FA Cup final win, of course, was a, it was a return to Europe. Uh, didn't last very long, but but what was that experience like um, f- f- for Joe and, f- and for the and for the team? I absolutely adored it, you know, so as an experience. But it, it was weird because that was the era, if you remember, when you couldn't play more than I think it was. You had to have at least five, uh, you know, sort of domestic nationals in your starting lineup. So, uh, and for that purposes, Barry Horn counted as a, a foreigner because he was Welsh. 
um, you know, sort of level south or because he was Welsh. You were only allowed, you know, a certain number of, you know, sort of foreign players. So there was a bit of a balancing act to have to, uh, you know, sort of uh, play there. So, you know, we drew, drew up K.R. Reykjavik in the, in the opening round of the Cup Winners' Cup, uh, which was great, great experience. Uh, they weren't a particularly good side. And again, it was a couple of little scares. We won 3-2 away. Uh, beat them 3-1 at Goodison, I think. Uh, but it was, you know, fairly comfortable. It was just a great experience of following Everton into, uh, into Europe. That was the area when Barry Horn couldn't play. And uh, he was left at home. And Andy Hinchcliffe, when we were in Iceland, had bet me. He says, come on, you know, so I bet you, I'll give you a phrase. You've got to try and get into your match report. And I said, oh, God, go on. Well, what's coming up here? Anyway, he told me I had to get the words Baron Tundra into the match report. So it was easy enough to do. You know, so I just talked about you know, the Baron Tundra of K.I. Reykjavik's uh, pitch, which was actually quite decent. I remember Barry pulling me you know, so when, I, when we got back home, saying, what were you talking about, Baron's 100? Yeah, much about that pitch looked quite decent. I said, yeah, it was, to be fair. It was just a, a joke with, with Andy. But that, that was, you know, the, the, the relationship we had back then with the club, you know, so we were allowed to travel with the players, you know, so I, I was quite close to a few of them. And it was, it, it was a great dynamic. So, you know, so travelling to Iceland was great. And then they drew fine order, a decent side in the next round. Uh, they had uh, Reggie Blinker playing for the Henrik Larsson, you know, so we basically became a legend The Celtic, was playing the for them. And the future, exactly. future Everton manager, yeah, yeah. Ronald Koeman, of course, uh, centre back. We got Craig Short sent off in the in the second leg, but we did okay. Yeah, we got beat at home one nil, uh, but then went over there, played, performed particularly well, but then conceded another, and that was it. That was effectively the end of us. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was a frustrating you know sort of European campaign for as long as it lasted. But it was just great to see Everton back in Europe again and actually you know, sort of playing games like that. Mm, indeed. Okay. Well, Gav, I'm going to come back to you now. So, um, Waggy takes over for the final yeah. six or seven games of that season. Was was the name Howard Kendall in the public domain? Was it on people's lips going into that summer, or was it a surprise no. to see Howard return? <laughs> I think 1990 was a surprise. I think 97. I think Preno will probably remember this more than me. I think Peter Johnson said there uh, we'll be getting a world class manager. Correct. Uh, it was, was was the phrase he used in about when I think after just after Joe had uh, been whatever you would say mutually, you know whatever mutually contact ended whatever. Uh, yeah, uh, well, talk about talk you know talking big. Um, Waggy, you know we were never go down, but we weren't certainly hundred percent certain staying up. I think we won and two a couple of games, uh, so we stayed up. I think it started off uh, Johan Cruyff. Bobby Robson, who I think there was a conversation with Bobby Robson about it when Bobby was at Barcelona. Not the first Everton I've ever had with uh, Bobby Robson, to be fair. Right. Uh, and then, if I remember, there was this odd one, wasn't there? Klinsman was blinked because I think um, he was talking about finishing his career. Uh, and then we spoke to Martin O'Neill. And then we had this, you, you talk about, there must have been a lot of unclear conversations that went on with Peter Johnson. You then, the Joe and Peter Johnson conversation now becomes the, the Andy Gray. <laughs> It's a Johnson conversation in the summer of 1997. Because I tell you what, a hell of a lot went out park foods, didn't it? Because I think Andy went over there, didn't he? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, he had a conversation with Joe. and uh, Sorry, yeah. Peter Johnson had a conversation with Andy. And at the end of the air conversation, Peter Johnson was convinced he'd offered Andy Gray the job. And Andy Gray was equally convinced he hadn't been offered the job. Yeah. It was, it was completely <laughs> 
it was all unclear, wasn't it? I think Andy went away. I think he even got his backroom staff together, didn't he? And sort of yeah. said. And then I think whether and Andy then subsequently said that well, nothing was forthcoming. Sky were obviously getting a bit uh, worried about what was going on. So he, Andy got a you know nice new contact off Sky, and he rethought his options and then stayed there. Um, Stayed, stayed where he was. I always think that was a great opportunity. Best, you know, I think that would have been a, a really interesting appointment. I think uh, Andy would have, uh, you know, had the, you know, knew understood the Premier League, the way the game was going, knew the club. I think that would have been a very, uh, very good combination. Um, and then all of a sudden, how would they gone to Sheffield United? They've done a really good job, hadn't he? Got them to the playoff finals, Wembley. Lost in the last minute to Crystal Palace, I think. Then all of a sudden, um, we get get a position where Howard is offered the uh, the job for the the third time, which was seemed unbelievably when he started off the, you know, the, the you know the, the sequence looking at Johan Cruyff and Bobby Robson. Now when Howard Mark three. It was. It was. A, it was a completely surreal period again. As much of Peter Johnson's tenure as Everton chairman was, I mean, the end of that season uh, underlined how badly Everton needed to to rebuild and restructure. Uh, you think of some of the players that Waggy actually ended up playing. I think he introduced Richard Dunn into the team then. Um, John Hills uh, played at the end of uh, the, the last yeah. of the season against Chelsea. Uh, he played Paul Rideout in central midfield uh, against Tottenham in a game that we needed to win. Uh, to you know, basically guarantee Premier League safety with three or four games to go, and uh, Paul Ryder had agreed a, fee, a deal to go to China, and um, Waggy said, "No, you're not going. You know, so I need you for this game." And I remember getting a phone call that night at home from uh, from from Paul Ryder's missus, who I didn't know, um, basically you know, so asking me to put pressure in the in, in print on the manager to let him go and join China because, you know, he was ruining things for their family. And I said, I haven't got that kind of influence. I can't do that, I'm afraid. Anyway, Waggy dug his heels in. Actually, you know, so played uh, uh, Paul in centre mid and he was magnificent. Absolute testimony to his professionalism and his ability as a footballer. He basically dictated the game that day. Gary Speed scored the winner with a dive and header down the street and we won 1-0 and that was it. You know, Paul could then leave and he actually left on the back of a motorbike uh, from Goodison Park straight after the game. Not quite still in his kit, but as good as uh, to try and make, make, make a flight from Manchester Airport to get to China. So, you know, we had all that, you know, having to you know, sort of put square pegs into round holes at the end of that season. Then you had the constant ongoing about a world-class manager, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. And uh, boy, would we surprised. Uh, you know, so when, when basically, I think because he'd been let down by so many other individuals, I think he finally went for one man that he knew would definitely yeah. say yes regardless. And that was Howard, you know, because Howard adored the club so much. He knew that Howard would come back. Uh, and Howard did. But 97-98 should never have happened. I mean, that, that is one of the most unpleasant seasons that we've ever had as a football club. It was a dreadful season from start to finish. And I just wish it never happened. Unfortunately, it did. Well, you know, look, in the interests of time, because we're, uh, we're, we're well on, let's just, let's just try and skip right to the final day. Because, you know, that is, that is the season, effectively, isn't it, in many respects? Um, Coventry, yeah. May the 10th. Gav, um, can you just set the scene for us a little bit and, uh, and what, well, we are, what we are hopes panic. going in? Absolutely panic, I'd say. It's been a dreadful campaign. There's been very little redeeming features apart from four points against Liverpool. Um, we got beaten badly at Arsenal on the on the preceding Sunday, mm. I think, uh, where we looked a shocking, shocking team, you know. Um, and unlike 94, 
the you know things are out of our hands because it was I think it was us and Bolton. Okay. Um, so Bolton went into the, the the last game of the season going to Chelsea, points ahead of us. Which the irony being, which is always relevant to the final day, is it had been the away game of Bolton early on in the season, where the teams had drawn nil nil, but Bolton had uh, had, to, had to go the ball had crossed over the line, which go, we wouldn't have needed goal line technology to uh, to rule on it. It was quite blatantly over the line. So it was, if they win now, Neville was fouled. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go, we go into the final, go into the final day. Come to a decent team under the good sack. They have a lot of good players. What could be Dion Dublin, you know that type of stuff. Um, you know, good team. Um, and you're thinking, you're looking at our lineup, and I think if I remember. I'm not sure Gareth Farley was in Howard's original plans. I think Howard changed his mind overnight, didn't he? Um, yeah. And said that he fancied him, he'd not scored and put him in. And then it's not like 94, this. It's, it's, it, this is something that's out of our hands to a degree. And fortunately for us, we scored early on. I think Chelsea scored uh, reasonably early on or whatever. And so it was more about what happened at Chelsea at some point. To a degree, um, but it was it was panic. Uh, for me, it was far more. It was worse than '94 for the start because we had a much worse team than yeah. '94. We had some good players in '94, but '98. You know, if you have a look at that team, with all due respect, and I mean, there's a couple of really good, like Michael Michael Ball was playing, wasn't he? Really good player, but there's a lot of players there. Think I'm not so sure about this. Coventry are so panic would be my uh, word to use there, Phil. Well, it was. It was an absolutely horrible atmosphere, that, because, you know, the, the fans were starting to turn on the chairman quite significantly then. Uh, there'd been chance during the season when we got beat at home by Tottenham, uh, the first chance of we want Johnson out, we want Johnson out. You know, it was a really, you know, sort of nasty atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, going into that game, it was it was absolutely horrendous. You mentioned Michael Ball, and uh, the one thing that actually strikes me about that game, because Chelsea, if you remember, they had a European Cup Winners' Cup final only three days later, uh, yeah. After that Bolton game, they were playing. This was a Sunday afternoon. They were playing on the Wednesday in the European Cup Winners' Cup final. So that was the fear. Chelsea are going to basically change their team, and they're going to just take it nice and easy. You know, so they're not going to be like so, you know taking things you know so particularly seriously. Fortunately, they were very very professional, and you saw and beat Bolton two 0 that day. But I don't know. I can't remember when it was that you know so the first goal had gone in. We were leading one 0 and then uh, obviously a goal had gone in down at Stamford Bridge. And I remember Duncan Ferguson running over to the touchline because like a roar had gone around the crowd and like, you hit these false roars all the time, don't you? You don't know what's going on. And Duncan had gone over and was asking a fan what's happened and the fan was obviously appearing to tell him, you know, so yes, you know, so Chelsea are winning, turning round to try and like transmit that information to the players. And Michael Ball, he was must have been about 18 or 19 at the time, uh, was stood in the middle of the pitch, screaming at these like much more experienced teammates and pointing at his temples, shouting, focus, focus. And it was basically, forget what's going on elsewhere, just yeah. concentrate on this game. And that was the moment to me, I thought, wow, we've got a young player here, you know, so we've got yeah. a, a young man who knows, you know, so what it's all about. Uh, but it was, you know, we, we had to, we couldn't even look after ourselves that day. We couldn't even beat Coventry. You know, yeah. obviously, Thomas Myra, who was a decent goalkeeper, uh, less, and Dion Dublin, we all know his part in Everson's history, a looping, you know, so long-range header slipped through his hands. Actually, prior to that, it was 1-0, and we got a penalty. Mm, and yeah. uh, It shouldn't have been a penalty, I think. Uh, you know, so Danny Cadamatri dived over a, a challenge. Nick Barnby took it, and uh, it, was just, it was a poor penalty. You know, so they saved it, so it's still only 1-0. 
And then I still, again, remember the atmosphere when Thomas Mara let that header slip through his hands. And you think, because it was a really wet day, you're thinking, oh, my God, no. It, it's it's going to be one of those days. Anyway, yeah. was, we got one point. They got none. And somehow we stayed up on goal difference. Because it, it was a bit more complicated than that, I think, because when they went when it was, when they went one all at Goodison, it was still only 1-0 at Stamford Bridge. So both yeah. men were back into the thing where they've only got a score yeah. to stay up rather than win. And if don't if you ever watch that game, when it goes to one all at Goodison, all the Chelsea fans start supporting both. <laughs> Stamford Bridge. Oh, no. it, it's, all, it's all mad because it was another game to Chelsea. They got the Cup Winners' Cup final. And I think it was uh, Josie Morris scored, I think, down there right near the end. With, then just came a case of uh, what happened to Goodison. It was, a bit, it was a bit petrifying, to say the least. And it, it, it was a different emotion, I think, in 98 to what it was in 94. 94 was relief, but I think 98, there was a... Uh, was anger. It, wasn't, it, was anger. A, it was more anger, wasn't it? Yeah. I know, I think, in 98 rather than oh, yeah, 94. Well, the, the final whistle, yeah. I mean, you know, because people's you know, emotions were shredded. I mean, there's that famous picture uh, that was you know, carried in the Echo on the Monday of the Everson fan, middle-aged man, uh, stood in the streets outside Goodison Park after the final whistle crying his eyes out just because the emotion yeah. just got him so much. And uh, we actually tracked him down and he was massively embarrassed and didn't want his picture in the paper. Well, you know, and Brian Lebone was pictured just wandering around the streets after he couldn't watch the end of the game. He left the stage and he just started pacing the streets on his own. Uh, it was, it was a horrible atmosphere. And when the final whistle went, it was, it was instant. We want Johnson out. It, it was anger. It was, uh, it, it was nasty. And then we had that horrible situation of Howard basically on death row for a couple of months because it was the, uh, the World Cup summer. And uh, yeah. everyone knew that Howard was going to get sacked, and yet Peter Johnson hadn't made the decision. And actually, he flew to meet Peter Johnson at his holiday home in Italy and left still as the Everton manager, even though he knew he was going to sack him, uh, but, but hadn't. And eventually, it was Jordan the World Cup. I think he was basically trying to make sure he got somebody lined up this time, as he hadn't done previously, yeah. uh, so he didn't leave himself you know, so short again. But to, to treat a club legend like that and a man as loved as Howard Kendall uh, in that manner left yeah. a sour taste. I think it was it was difficult for Peter Johnson to come back after that. Yeah, it, I think um, Howard was actually on holiday himself, wasn't he? He got called off his holiday to go to Johnson's holiday place, yeah, and then yeah. had another Joe Royal type com an Andy Gray yeah. type conversation. You know. Yeah. Anyway, did, yeah, bad day. Um, in in Walter Smith, did Peter Johnson get the man he he wanted? He did. I mean, um, Walter was a much sought after manager there that summer. He'd um, done incredible things at Glasgow Rangers. And, um, you know, so created some teams that had done really well in Europe as well. Uh, and Sheffield Wednesday uh, with, the, with the club that I think he'd had conversation with Sheffield Wednesday first and had agreed to go there when Peter Johnson got wind of the fact that, you know, so he was available. And so, you know, so jumped in, you know, so made an offer. And, you know, best will in the world, despite the you know, trials and tribulations that existed at Everton, um, you know, Everton were a much bigger name than Sheffield Wednesday at the time, a much more attractive prospect. And Sir Walter agreed uh, to, you know, sort of change, you know, sort of tack on route and uh, become the Emerson manager. Also probably helped in part by the fact that it had been promised this, what do we call them nowadays? Transfer war chest. That's a phrase that's disappeared out the footballing lexicon that yeah, needs well, to be revisited, I think. Well, it was certainly there that summer. Uh, yeah. Peter Johnson had basically promised him, you know, sort of unlimited funds to spend on players. So Walter, you know, sort of quite naively in retrospect went ahead and spent 
uh, you know, did the old Viv Nicholson spend, spend, spend thing. And he bought some really good players. And Olivier Dacour was a superb player. Uh, John Collins was very good. Marco Materazzi ended up becoming um, you know, sort of a World Cup winner. Uh, Ibrahima Bakayoko was one that wasn't a success, but you know, so it was quite an exciting signing at the time. Steve Simonson was bought from Tranmere, which was advertised at the time as a world record transfer fee for a goalkeeper of 3.3 million, which was utter nonsense because Peter Johnson had a foot in both camps, obviously. I think we had to be part of it 500 grand in the end. I think yeah. Simonson needed to play for England like 100 times to make it 3.3 million quid. But it was an exciting time at Everton because you know, we had a new manager, we were bringing in new players. What we didn't know at the time is the club didn't have that money. And uh, Peter Johnson was basically borrowing or allowing the club to borrow to fund this transfer splurge. And then we ended up having that horrible situation. You know, so not that long into Walter's tenure of the, uh, the chairman selling centre-forwards behind the manager's back to try and keep the banks at bay <laughs> and Duncan Ferguson join Newcastle. So what very, very quickly started off was quite an exciting period. It went bleak very, very quickly. It, it did. I was. I was saying to Phil before before we came came on air. I said I was in the press box that night. We played Newcastle. Yeah. And um, the first time I've ever been in the press box, but I know. And um, I, I I remember seeing Rodolfo on the stairs, you know, acting suspiciously. Yeah. And I've since learned, and that was what I think Walter got interviewed after by Sky. Who said like, you know, Fergus is going to, you know, Newcastle. Yeah. Don't really. And Walter genuinely didn't know and then there was obviously there was stuff in the following 24 hours where Walter may have left and you know that was the story yeah, yeah. and I do remember you saying I can't remember you told me or read that wasn't it wasn't it the editor of the Echo couldn't believe that like an Everton manager would know one of his players had been sold well yeah at the time it was, it was a very very bizarre situation that I mean uh, Duncan was walking down the staircase as a site was walking up the staircase as Walter and Archie were coming down with their respective wives Duncan had been suspended or injured, wasn't playing in that game. And as he passed the manager, he said, I thought you might have stuck up for me, Gaffer. And Walter stuck up for you. What are you talking about? He says, well, I've signed for Newcastle. You've what? He says, have you signed anything? Well, no, I haven't, but I've shaken hands on a deal. So he turns to Walter, Archie, what are we going to do? They go down to the referee's room, which is next to the changing room in the tunnel there with their respective wives. I said, what are we going to do? Anyway, dear old Janice Knox pipes up, you know, so during the conversation, as well, Archie, I've been in the lounge upstairs, and if what they're saying up there is true, it sounds like uh, Everton have hatched a very, very good deal for Duncan. Archie turns around, and I won't use the language that you know, so he used to his wife, but Janice, shut the F up. Anyway, <laughs> Ethel Smith jumps in and says, Oh, you know, Archie, you can't talk to Janice like that. Anyway, the whole thing, you know, so you know, uh, deteriorated, and so they agreed to go and meet elsewhere. But yeah, I'd gone into work the following day, and uh, Tony Story was the acting editor to that day. Tony Story was the old business editor of the Echo. And when I told him the story, he, he refused to believe it. I don't think he could believe that a, a reputable business could run a, you know, so a business in that fashion. And he says, no, 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 he must have known. The manager must have known. You know, the, the Echo's editorial policy will be that he knew. So I go down to Belfield to see Walter. And I said, look, Walter, I'm awfully sorry, but my gaffer doesn't think that you, know, so you were unaware of it. He thought that you must have known. And I'll tell you what, if, if Walter didn't know, he's an Oscar-winning actor because he went ballistic. You sit there, son. You're not leaving this office till I've got that. I won't use the phrase he used for Peter Johnson on the phone. And you've heard him tell you that I didn't know anything about it. Anyway, he's banging on his phone. 
and quite understandably, Peter's not picking up his mobile, he's not picking up his house phone, he's not picking up his phone on his yacht. Walter's getting angrier and angrier. And in the end, I said, look, look, I believe you, Walter, I believe you. I'll go and tell Tony that you didn't know anything about it. So I did. Fortunately, you know, so Tony expected my, uh, accepted my point of view. And we had that, like, ridiculous situation where myself and her, Paul Joyce, who uh, worked for the Daily Post at the time, now works for the Times, Joycey, and we were both very close to Walter. And we were due to go out that week on the Thursday and, uh, for a meal. And, you know, we just thought, oh, well, that's it. It's going to be, you know, so put on ice. We're not going to be going out now. And Walter says, no, oh, no, no, we'll still go out. He goes, I might not be manager of Everton Football Club, but we'll definitely go out. So we went out to a place called the, the, um, oh, the Left Bank on uh, Smithdown Road. And uh, had this great nice house on the Thursday. And you can imagine, like, some of the insight we were getting onto what was going on behind the scenes there. So I wrote a piece the following morning for the Footy Echo where I branded the, uh, the chairman of the Everton Football Club blundering, inept and crass. And uh, you, can imagine, you can imagine where a lot of that source material came from. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was a very, very bizarre week. I think Peter Johnson did finally quit uh, the week after that. And he had to, yeah. uh, I think his position had become untenable. I, I think just as a balance there, remember there was an ATM around that time. I remember I find my brain. But Peter, he provided the information that we'd spent more than any other club over, over a four-year period, hadn't we? So, yeah. I mean, to, to be fair to Peter, he had given Everett managers a comparative large amount of money to spend. Yeah, you could argue, you could argue that some of them, some of the bases weren't that great. Yeah. But yeah, Decor was a great basis. Maserati was, you know, he was still winning Champions League twelve years after joining Everett. Yeah. The only problem with that season is that we could score goals, could we? I think it was was it February before we scored the league goal at the season. It was oh, something mad, wasn't it? It, it, it? it absolutely absurd. If you think about it, we yeah. had seven goalless draws that season. Yeah. Six of them at Goodison. Imagine going to Goodison and seeing six goalless draws. Yeah. Because I mean, Walter wanted to do to a lesser degree what Joe had done and shore things up defensively. And he often played five at the back. Uh, he often played three central defenders, but you know the counter to that was never looked like scoring goals. And we finally broke that duck in bizarre fashion. We put five past Middlesbrough, and it was just yeah. like, you know, so where did that come from? Where did that performance suddenly come from? Yeah, I remember, I remember that game scored after forty seconds, didn't we? I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But around that time, Phil as well. I mean, Walter, to be fair, bought a good place. He bought Davy Weir then, didn't he? Yeah. Um, so that first season, that was seven goals scored, not great. And we get to Easter, don't we? We got beaten the derby on the on the Saturday. Uh, the course score, didn't he? We go uh, Easter Monday. We got beaten at home. Was it Aston Villa or two one something like that? Yeah. And then we're in we're in problems. Then we're back right near the, the relegation zone, aren't we? And then he brought Kevin Campbell out. Well, we got Kevin Campbell on loan with Scott Gemmell, hadn't he, just before the derby? And because uh, as you say, money was tight. Um, and then we we, we played uh, Coventry, wasn't it? I think on the on the was it a Sunday game, I called us and Kevin started on this this tremendous goal scoring run, which effectively you know sort of keeps us in there. He was in the Premier League, wasn't it? Because we were we were going down at Easter, I think. Oh, Kevin was inspirational. I mean, he came in. I think it was a uh, six goals or seven goals in a period of six games. Hat trick against West Ham, a goal at Newcastle, a goal against Coventry. Uh, in fact, that Coventry game is famous for uh, Marco Matarazzi. Marco Matarazzi, yeah. Darren Huckabee, uh, like, sort of dived, and uh, Mark Masterati got sent off. 
And rather than walking off, he, histrionics with the referee, marched over to the advertising hoarding uh, down by the park end, sat down and started crying. Marco did the unbelievable that season, got sent off in all three competitions, isn't it? Which I presume nobody's ever done before, you know, never done before, never done since. Oh, he did. He was a great, great player. I mean, he scored a free kick from outside the box, bent one in from 20 yards, scored to the back heel against Huddersfield in the League Cup. But his yeah. di- discipline was questionable at best, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, well, yeah, to course to to was as well, wasn't he? To yeah. was always getting booked. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. He bought, he, Walter bought some good signings. The problem, as you say, he then had to sell them in, in the summer, didn't he? To yeah. went, Maserati went. He bought back Yoko, back at the Echo famously. He, yeah. he went. And then back again, we were money's tight in, in the summer of 99. It was just a case of getting Kevin signed up in there. Scott and he bought, I think he bought for Mark Pembridge as well, didn't he? Uh, that summer. And yes, and, uh, Blomqvist, I think, on uh, from yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that and that, that was '99. Was um, we we had since that summer. We started the season off really well, if I remember. Two, we won two games four 0 didn't we? Good, then we go to Anfield in September. Yeah. Um, I think we miles. I think we four or five points out of Liverpool at that stage, and. Um, Little did we know at the time. Yeah. <laughs> our, our last win, and well-deserved. We actually started that season against Man United at Goodison, and it was yeah. like United had just won the treble, and so it was like a real sense of foreboding about that game. And uh, they took the lead, but um, Nick Barnby, I thought, was sort of credited with the goal, but it was an own goal off Yapstam, uh, but we drew 1-1. But then, yeah, put those you know, four goals past Wimbledon, four goals past uh, Southampton, Southampton wasn't it? yeah. Richard Goff had been signed. Richard Goff was 38. Dave Watson yeah. was 37, or the other way around. And, you know, a central defensive partnership, there were like more than 70 between them. And Waggy was, like I said, a club legend. Goffy was magnificent. I would have loved to have seen him at his peak uh, because, you know, so him playing it as a 37, 38 year old then was like something else. Uh, so, yeah, Walter did do, you know, some good business in the transfer market. But as you said, a lot of the players that he'd signed, because of the financial situation at the club and the bank threatening to foreclose on the club, he had to sell them all, you know, so fairly quickly. So never really got the benefits of them. And his entire period as Everton manager was a question of selling, buying and selling, buying and selling. A couple of years down the line, you know, we thought we had the NTL deal, signed a, a media deal. You know, yeah. So, so a, a spending spree of 25, 30 million was sanctioned on the back of that. The NTL deal collapsed an hour before it was due to be signed. So we had to sell all those players again. So, you know, so people give Walter a bit of a bad rap uh, for his you know, t- uh, tenure as Everton manager, but he did have a lot to contend with. So should we get she get to the end of ninety-nine and we're sort of I can't remember we're sort of eighth, eighth or ninth on the table. But I think we're in a better shape at the end of ninety nine than what we had been, say, two, two or three years before then, to be honest with you. Um saying defensive defensively we're a bit more stable anyway. But we did have these financial constraints. Interesting. Well, uh, ra- rather fi- rather fittingly, uh, of course we ended the decade with a nil nil. <laughs> Who was that against? Brad- Bradford, was it? Bradford on, yeah, December yeah. the 28th. Well, to tell you what, those trips to Bradford, you know, so whilst that match might not have been particularly memorable, Bradford City as a destination <laughs> certainly was, because I remember going there, that, I think we won 1-0 a year or so later when Gary Naismith might have scored, but going to Bradford, they were only in the Premier League briefly, but boy, did they push the boat out. You'd go there and there were these magnificent array of curries before the match. So you'd dine out on all these curries and think, wow, how good was that? You go back in at half time, 
I'm going to say big black forest gattos and cakes and all kinds. So whilst that match is like just not registered yeah. at all on my radar, certainly the hospitality at Bradford did. Great football club to visit there. The only time I went to Bradford Saints, the only time I went to Bradford Saints enough was the, uh, the day after my 21st birthday party and I think for the FA Cup game. And uh, I think it was six o'clock in the evening before I realised it was in Bradford. Uh, to <laughs> 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 Chat, uh, excellent and uh, a fitting end. I think uh, it's a decade that uh, yeah, was not as uh, as we would have liked, but of course it did bring the FA Cup success in the middle, and uh, for that we will always be thankful. Um, Chaps has been brilliant again. Really appreciate you, your company and your insight and humour and knowledge about a, a really fascinating period that perhaps doesn't get talked about and for understandable reasons quite as much as, as it should do but uh, no thank you very much and thank you for listening hope you've enjoyed this two-part 90 special that's supplemented our two-part 80 special maybe if the lads are brave enough we'll go into the naughty so let's see oh, this yeah, has been a well blue podcast yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for listening you've been listening to the royal blue podcast from the liverpool echo